Welcome to TalkEerie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. Happy New Year, Joel. Thanks for having me back. This was kind of a fulfillment of an agreement we had. Yes, we so, did. We, had, we had to get through, <laughs> uh, through the era of uh, not talking so we can come yep. back and talk. And, and you know, uh, I want to jump right ahead with the, with the pandemic because uh, do you feel like, you know, because you were, you were, we were talking to you in the middle of it. There were some right. special court cases that came about because of the pandemic. But in, in the operation of the pandemic, did it really mess with the courts? Well, okay, so let's look historically. Yes, it did, but no, it didn't because of a great team effort here. Uh, we had everybody marching on the same uh, drumbeat. And by that, I mean, when the pandemic first really manifested, let's say March, I think, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th of uh, 2020, um, we really jumped into action. Actually, uh, was it 19? Um, yeah. And uh, I was president judge. We didn't know what was coming. But then we, we, of course, were inundated with concerns. It gets declared a national uh, a pandemic, uh, global ramifications. Now we know we have something on our hands. And what that led to was us issuing our first ever judicial emergency order, where we kind of transformed what, what, what hearings would look like now. We had concerns with the Erie County Prison being a captive, you know, uh, body of uh, individuals who were coming to court. And we were concerned that if it got into there, it would be like an incubator. So we worked with their warden, Kevin Sutter. We worked with our administrative judges, Walsh and Mead at the time. And we issued an order to address the public, trying to balance the safety of the public with the need to continue these hearings. And I will say this, after 13 judicial emergency orders in my tenure as PJ, we never once shut our courtrooms down. Now, they look different. Um, we transformed, we put jury trials on hold because quite simply, Joel, we couldn't bring 150 people into a closed quarter room like we were doing in the past. Yeah, That had to change. So we had to look to a bigger courtroom, different procedure, doing a morning session, an afternoon session, limiting it to 45 jurors in the morning, 45 in the afternoon, spacing, and um, not to talk too long in this narrative, but it also meant we were securing protective equipment. I mean, from hand sanitizers to shields in courtrooms, to safe spacing, to uh, video conferencing, to telephone, telephone conferencing. We adapted, but we had a lot of help. There were a lot of moving parts, but we kept inching forward. Didn't you have to use, what was it, courtroom H is the big old one? Uh, didn't you have to yeah. use that for jury selection? We did, and to her credit, Judge Kelly, who sits in that courtroom, presides, and it was very flexible with us in working with just the space that we needed until we altered our jury selection process. In other words, until we altered the number of jurors coming in and we could safe distance them, that's what we did. And then we used a dedicated conference room 209 
to do our video conferencing with our incarcerated uh, individuals because their rights are, are more sensitive and critical and should be protected because their liberties compromised. So we had to get to their hearing sooner. You know, you've heard of the protection uh, speedy trial yeah. uh, under our Sixth Amendment, um, and we were sensitive to that. And so, you know, we still kept inching forward. We still kept hearing protection from abuse cases. The uh, emergency uh, dependency cases where children were in danger, we had to have those hearings. They could not stop. Yeah, they're they're time sensitive and time critical. Did you hear any like again? You're reading the journals and and the the trades, if you will. Did anybody like say, "Hey, we got to move out of the courthouse. We're gonna set up in a in a hotel or set up at the convention center in order to just cut." You know what I mean? Like just to be able oh, yeah. to use the space. Listen, Allegheny and Philadelphia counties. We were kind of working hand in hand in Allegheny County and. I think down in Philly, they did look at alternative juror sites and holding centers. Um, we all the, we looked at everything. We just felt that we had the apparatus not to do that. Yeah. It was beneficial to all the parties. The attorneys were very cooperative with us, and that spirit of cooperation has now carried us through, even with Om, Om, Omnicrom. Yeah, whatever the yeah. variant is now. Yeah. Look, looking at a thirty thousand foot view at the judicial system nationwide. Do you feel like the pandemic has had uh, has had a ill effect on the greater cause of justice? No. And, you know, they, there's a saying justice delayed is justice denied. But we've never denied the essential hearings from being heard in court fairly. So my 30,000 foot view, of course, is somewhat confined to Erie County. I did. I do look at sister states, New York obviously, and Ohio, because um, I get publications on what they're doing. And there are bigger counties, but I'm sensitive to the needs of the people in Erie County. And I know our other judges were and did a great job. So I, I'd like to be beholden to the fact that, no, I think justice uh, carried on. All righty. I'd like to go through the layers of the judicial system with you. You taught us this. Uh, gosh, now it's been uh, close to three years ago. Uh, and uh, But I want to kind of pick it apart a little bit uh, just as a review and, and some questions here. So let's start with the man magisterial district judges. Um, okay. Uh, there was an expose by uh, one of the statewide uh, media outlets – and, and they were like looking at how busy or how hardworking that these judges were. So in your opinion, do we have too many uh, district judges? Do they work hard enough? Well, uh, okay, let's work through this. Yes, they work abundantly hard. I am parochially protective of Erie County. Um, and if you notice that expose had nothing to say about the MDJs in Erie County. Right. Uh, because I will say this, they did outstanding work. We have uh, 13 representing uh, various geographic areas. But let me ex also try to work in a, an instructional lesson here. If anybody's listening, they can look at Pennsylvania's court structure like a pyramid with the top, the pinnacle, the smallest portion of the pyramid being our Pennsylvania Supreme Court. But the bottom layer, the broadest layer, is the Magistrate District Justice Court. They are the most voluminous court for handling number of cases, and it's the first contact for people. 
whether it's a landlord tenant, a dispute $12,000 or under in a civil matter, whether it's a traffic ticket, whether it's um, a foray into the criminal justice system. Now, magistrate district judges have what we call limited jurisdiction and substitute the word jurisdiction for the power or authority to act, okay? Now, they can dispose of misdemeanors of the third degree down to summary offenses and some situations, M2s or DUIs, in limited circumstance. So their ability to resolve certain types of criminal matters at the high end, murders, felonies, rapes, etc., is confined to a very important hearing called a preliminary hearing. So they do very important work. They set bond in criminal matters. They're the first entry system for parties really in the state of Pennsylvania. Now, in we were short in the um, in, in two wards for a period of time, one because of retirement, one for ex- extraordinary other circumstances. And now there were times that we were using senior magistrate district uh, judges, but then we got depleted at that end. So we had magistrate district judges who not only scheduled their hearings, but went and handled the hearings in the second and first ward. And we could not commend them enough. And the people of Erie County should be very thankful for what they did. That's why you never saw any of the MDJs show up in that expose. They had, we gave them full audit review and, uh, Actually, I think they were very impressed with the amount of work that was being generated out of Erie County. So, so that's so that's our first layer. That's yes. working. That first layer is working. The second layer up from the magistrate uh, is the Court of Common Pleas, which, uh, Judge, you're a member of this for Erie County. First off, right. um, for a long, long time, we were short uh, uh, Common Pleas judges, right? Three. That's right. Going back four years, the passing of God rest his soul, Bob Sambrock, a great man, died much too young. Uh, Really, really, you know, not only were we professional colleagues, we were friends. That that was tough. But then we had retirements. We had Judge Garhart, Judge Cunningham. And then uh, we did get an appointment with now Judge Piccinini. He he was first appointed. Now he's been duly elected. Uh, But we had vacancies to fill. That's right. And so we had senior judges that were uh, uh, pinch hitting and, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, we, and that's tough did, sometimes, you know. But we all, you know, we all pitched in and uh, to everyone's credit, they never, there was no one that was deprived of a hearing because we didn't, couldn't fill a courtroom. So, so we're that, at, we're at where we need to be now, right? Okay. So let me explain this. We've moved up now in what I've said before is jurisdiction. We are a court of general jurisdiction. You can think of that as us as the general trial court, the fact-finding court. We have the power to act over several types of cases. Just think of the name court of common pleas. What are common pleas? Well, it could be divorce, custody. It could be a child under 18 who gets in trouble, delinquency. could be a child under 18 who needs uh, parents or supervision, dependency. It could be the litigation of a trust or an estate. We have orphans court. We have uh, family, custody. Uh, Of course, we go into criminal matters uh, from all levels, from the highest level, first degree murder, all the way down uh, the line. We have civil litigation, you know, med mal, med mal practice, uh, contract disputes, wow. uh, 
product uh, liability, personal injury. They're all in this court. So we are the true fact-finding court in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has 67 counties, but there are only 62 courts of common pleas because some counties uh, duplicate the services for another county. So one court of common pleas judge will serve two counties. Um, and then, of course, depending on size, you know, Philadelphia could have 98 or nine judges, Allegheny County, 45 judges. We have nine. Uh, so, you know, we're we're a third class county, but we have nine uh, judges in the Court of Common Pleas to handle these matters. How is the docket pretty full for Erie County? Is there a, oh, I think a measure there? Go down the hall. I think you'd see that on the uh, door of each judge. They're all pretty busy. And uh, if someone needs, you know, they're, they have uh, double hearings. Other judges pick up work for other judges when they need to or if there's an emergency. So we all chip in hand, you know, and, hand, and lend a hand to each other. It's, it's very much collegial. There's a lot of camaraderie. But it's all for the better good of the citizens of Erie County. And I truly mean that. That's not a just a, you know, a slogan. It's right. what we're committed to. And we should be because you put us here. Yeah. I, I've served on two juries where I've actually been selected and uh, had to uh, sit through the trial and come up with a, a, a verdict here. And uh, and I've noticed, and again, you don't have to answer this or not, but maybe you can shine some light. Uh, you know, the quality of litigants varies, okay? So, it does. And so you have some really, really um, – uh, pretty effective defense uh, defense uh, counsel, pretty effective prosecuting counsel, and then you have what I you know where I scratch my head and say, "Wow, that you know, can they speak up or can you know can they be a little bit more um, dynamic, if you will?" I, am I looking at it the wrong way? No, I think it's part of you know human nature in any profession. Pick one. Pick the medical profession, pick architects, pick whatever you want, teachers. There are dynamic ones and there are ones that, you know, communicate in different ways than other ones. And um, I think that's true when you get into a human element like litigation and you see uh, various courtroom procedures being carried out by attorneys. Some are more skilled than others. It's as simple as that. But your perception's not a um, not a wrong one. So, yeah. so, uh, but in given that, where we're basically somebody maybe you know may have not been may have not have been law review, but you know we're in the middle of the pack or in the lower of the pack of their of their uh, of their uh, you know law school. It, it just makes you wonder: can can somebody get a fair shake if they get somebody like that? Yeah, and your reference to law review for for anybody listening is someone who has written uh, some form of comment or, or note for their law school because they've distinguished themselves as a student in law school. So you're right to, in that echelon. But some who write for law review don't make great courtroom lawyers either. But to get to your point, there are protections in place, particularly in the criminal system. You can, if you do not have effective assistance of counsel, the Sixth Amendment protects you from that. And so you you can have that reviewed 
at a different layer of our courts, the appellate division. We are the fact-finding division. And a note on that, when we have trials, the danger is you do not want a judge becoming an advocate. Um, right. In other words, if it's a baseball game, there's a pitcher and a catcher or vice versa. We should be calling balls and strikes. Yeah. We shouldn't be pitching or catching. But um, uh, but again, again, I, I don't I don't know if I'm going to overstep here, but no, no, go ahead. But like if you if you see something that's just egregiously stupid by one of the counsels, can you call them to the bench and say, dude, that was stupid? Yeah, what you try if you have a jury trial with a impartial, fair and impartial fact finder sitting there. Um, there may be times, especially if it if it wades into an area of law that you ruled on, and they keep wading back into it. Uh, I will call a sidebar or bring them in in chambers. I don't like to address or dress down lawyers in front of a jury because it could have a negative impact on how they advocate for their case or how they're perceived. And again, you don't want to put your thumb on the scale here. That's right. why we have juries. They do that. They find the facts. The judge decides the law. You put the two together. They're to be married together, and hopefully a verdict is reached that is fair and just. That's how it's supposed to work. One, Does one, it all the one time? More, yeah. yeah. One more question before we yeah. go to the break at the bottom of the hour. Uh, yeah. when, it, when it comes to public defenders, people should feel – even though they don't have the dollars to, to pay for – a uh, you know a paid for attorney. They should feel confident that they're oh. getting strong representation from the public defense system, particularly in Erie County. So Pat Kennedy was a longtime public defender. She ran the office very well. But I can tell you, Nicole Sloan, who's been now designated our new public defender, has been commended several times for her ability to advocate and represent her clients, and she has a very effective staff that works very hard in the interests of justice to provide effective assistance of counsel. So I can only speak about Erie County, but you're exactly right. Uh, the dollar amount for the retainer has no bearing on the level of talent in our public defender's office. That's it's amazing. All right. So we've gone through two layers. We're going to go take our break here in a little bit and uh, and uh, get to the Commonwealth Court, the Superior Court and the Supreme Court, because there's there's been a lot of breaking news <laughs> with some of those layers. Uh, certainly, yeah. uh, I don't think I've ever heard uh, a state Supreme Court uh, called out on the national media like the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has in the last year or so. So, uh, again, we don't have to comment on uh, actual cases, but we can understand what their deal is and what, what their okay. function is. Before the break, we were at ready to talk about the Commonwealth Court. And, and again, uh, this is my observation, and then you can push back. It, it seems to be conservative, and it's been knocking down a lot of the governor's edicts, especially around the pandemic. And that's kind of its, its – well, it's not its role that it competes with the governor, but its role is to be between the people and the government, right? Well, I mean, Well, it's a third – you know, it's a third branch of government, the judiciary, and it's the checks and balances theory, keeping arguably the executive branch in check, if you will, depending on your political view. But that's the theory, you know, um, the legislative branch, the executive and now the judicial. And they're all supposed to work together 
to sort of run checks and balances. But let me go back to one thought on the quarter comma, please, in your mention of jury service. I just wanted to mention to people um, that we have done everything in our power to ensure your safety here. Okay. And there has been sometimes a reluctance for people to come up with excuses not to serve, for example. So I hear it a lot, especially when I was president judge, I took every complaint and answered everyone. I called every juror. And if you don't show, you need to show because you're going to get a warning letter and then you could get a visit from one of our deputy sheriff deputies. But here's my point. In my 20 years here on the bench and also my experience as a prosecutor, I frequently, if not almost 99%, meet with the juries after the trial. And their common response is, oh, I was so... I guess, frustrated, not angry, but like concerned that I was called for jury duty. And they they did express some either anxiety, some dissatisfaction. And then the response after serving is greatest thing I've ever done. Yeah. And, you know, I really try to emphasize that as a citizen of this great country, it's part of your duty when called to be as honest, forthright, as possible in performing that duty. So that's all. That's my little thing. And one, one, right. one more, uh, twenty seconds more on that. When I served in a jury, we had a we had an eleven to one scenario on okay. on, on a on a on a on a fellow, right? And um, twelve angry men. <laughs> that kind of thing. No, we were tr- <laughs> we were trying to keep it good cheer, but it was it was like it's the most unique experience to see uh, how. Um, people of good, um, you know, of good, good cheer, good, goodwill, I should say, you know, could can talk through the, the, you know, the different ideas yep. about a particular case until, you know, and four hours later, we finally came to an agreement. But it, it was so interesting, such a. Uh, just for somebody who's like a people watcher and interested in in uh, you know sociology. It is yeah. a, an incredible sociological event to be a part of a jury. It, it is to bring – and usually we're working on this too. And part of you know my tenure as PJ, we work with our court administration. We're doing everything we can to diversify this pool, yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. But when you bring different backgrounds into a room, people can get along and they can get to the right answer. Um, and jurors, I'm telling you, never underestimate the intelligence of jurors. Um because I have found our juries to be highly intelligent, effective, and just good people. So I think we're in sync on our observations. Yeah. Cool. All right, let's All right. talk about the Commonwealth Court. Uh, well, again, right okay. now, it's feeling like it's kind of conservative-leaning, especially in some of the, it, the rulings against the governor. You know. Well, okay, I'm not going to get into specific rulings, but I'd be – so we're working our way up to the, the pyramid. Now – our next level is narrower than the Court of Common Pleas sure. because we are at what's called an intermediate appellate level. Okay. Okay. Most people think of the Pennsylvania Superior Court as being representative of this level, and they're correct, except Pennsylvania has a unique distinction that I think in 1968 we added at this level, the Commonwealth Court. Now, the Commonwealth Court in other states, what I'm going to reference is usually handled by that state's intermediate court. 
but we broke it out and the jurisdiction of the Commonwealth Court is handled and covered by nine judges who sit in panels of three and they handle appeals involving state and local government and regulatory agencies. So what does that mean? Taxation, labor practices, liquor licenses, uh, land use, eminent domain, banking, insurance, elections, okay? So that that's their niche, okay? Now, the superior court, if you think of it, is still at this intermediate. When I say intermediate, that means there's one more level higher. Right. But you have, I call it mandatory appellate jurisdiction. So if you are not the verdict winner at the superior, at the court of common police, Mike, our court, the court of common police, that fact finding jury trial court, and let's say you're a criminal defendant and you don't like the verdict that found you guilty, you have a right to appeal and have it reviewed by a panel of three judges in the superior court. Let's say you're challenging eminent domain or some election law. You have a right to appeal it at least once to this level. I'm not saying that's why we call it mandatory. Of course, you have to follow the procedural rules. That means within a certain period of time, 30 days after your decision or whatever. But if you follow the procedure, you have a right to have a higher court review your decision now there's no fact finding here it's it's reviewing basically what we as court of common pleas judges do to see did we follow the law did we abuse our discretion did we apply the right standards was the verdict so outrageous that it shocked the conscience if it's a civil verdict was it just fueled by emotion and so large that there has to be a remitter in other words, it has to be scaled back, whatever. Interesting. Um, those are the kind of things that this appellate or review court does. And for the listeners, when you hear appeal, substitute the word review and it will make sense. You're reviewing the court below you. So the Commonwealth Court, as you've referenced, and the Superior Court review the Court of Common Pleas. Is there a metric of how many cases, let's say out of Erie County, go to review or appeal at either of those levels? Uh, I'm not sure the raw numbers, but I can assure you that you can imagine if you're a criminal defendant and you're convicted that you are going to challenge the sufficiency of evidence and the sentence given by the judge so i would say that the percentages are very high your likelihood of success might be low because those are somewhat um routine i don't don't want to diminish it because you certainly have a right and there are certainly legitimate cases that warrant reversal or remand but yeah i would say the percentages uh, are high that verdict winners take this first level of appeal. Okay, that's really um, interesting. I, I and is and is there a way that they sort through? I mean, that's got. I mean, we we talk about how busy your docket is in one county. There's 67 yeah. counties or 66 counties. I mean, that's crazy. How how many that could be? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean it will manifest itself to oral argument. Those are really reserved for the level of cases that have uh, some nuanced law on it or that need to be heard. So a lot of times briefs will be submitted and then the Superior Court will um, 
you know, on submission of briefs, render an opinion. Okay. So that moves through a lot of cases. But if you watch PCN, you can you you can watch the Superior Commonwealth and Supreme Court arguments. And I, I don't know, but I'm drawn to it. Uh, and it doesn't mean that they involve matters that come out of Erie County. I watch it. I look for advocacy, mm-hmm. how people present their cases, how they reserve time, how they rebut arguments. What kind of bench? Is it a hot bench? That means a lot of questions. Is it a passive bench that just lets the lawyers argue and then comes up with a decision later? So I'm fascinated by the appellate process. That's really cool. All right. So at the very top of the pyramid is the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Um, And again, this is my uh, take on it. Seems to be a bit more liberal and, it, and again, like we mentioned at the top of the show, it is the center of national controversy over the election of 2020 here. Uh, I, can't, I can't think of anybody else. I mean, um, no other judicial part of this deal has been under so much scrutiny as the Pennsylvania Supreme Court during the 2020 election. I don't All think right. in any other state, really. Without opining on that, let's look at what this level is. We are now at the top of the pyramid where it comes to a point. It would be the smallest triangle because it represents the smallest number of cases heard or reviewed on appeal. They have what's called King's Bench Jurisdiction or Authority. That's a very rare nuance that they could actually hear and have a trial. But just put that off to the side. That's so rare that it's not even worth consideration. So let's look at what they do. They are what's called a discretionary appellate court or review court. Discretionary meaning it's within their discretion whether or not these seven justices want to hear an appeal from the superior court. The only appeal that comes directly from the Court of Common Pleas is a death penalty case, a capital case, which should be reviewed at the highest level automatically. All right, take that out of the equation. So now you have approximately 3,000, two to 3,000 requests for review. The name of the request is called allocator, A-L-L-O-C-A-T-U-R, or your petition for allowance of appeal. What that means, Joel, is you're asking for permission from this court to hear your appeal. So because you get two to 3,000, they will only hear what they believe is the most critical issues of law in Pennsylvania or matters of first impression, a new constitutional amendment, a new act or legislation, um, a, a, a nuanced area of law. I had a law of merger back in 1988 where the court did not define whether sentences should run together or be added on top of each other for consecutive or concurrent sentences. And I actually went to Philly and argued before the seven justices, they granted Alicotter to decide and define merger. Now, so it has to be that type of important case. To get to that decision, because there are seven justices, not nine, like our United States Supreme Court. There are seven in Pennsylvania. They're elected. They serve 10-year terms. They're retained, yes or no vote, after they're elected up until the age of 75, mandatory retirement. Okay. Uh, Justice 
Saylor, Thomas Saylor, was our Chief Justice, but now Chief Justice Max Baer is the Chief Justice. Any relation to, to the boxer? Um, I, there may be a connection. B-A-E-R. He might be. Yeah, I think it's um, the same name, right? It is. And uh, it's a good question. And, uh, yeah, Beverly Hillbillies. Exactly yeah. <laughs> right. But n no association. Yes. Okay, so let's focus on how you get to aliquotter and how it's granted. Okay. Generally, there's what's called the rule of three. At our highest level at the United States Supreme Court, it's called the rule of four. The rule of three means, Joel, that three of those justices have to agree that it's important enough to hear. It's not a majority. It's three of them. And then if they do, it doesn't mean they're, that's how they're going to vote. They're just going to hear it. Right. Um, and, you know, our our Pennsylvania Supreme Court, who I have tremendous respect for, um, they have come under some scrutiny. I'm, you know, I'm not immune to hearing it. Yeah. I, I just don't immerse myself in it. Yeah. But they are our highest appellate court, which means they are our highest level of repute of review, and they have to grant permission. So aliquotter or petition for allowance of appeal. All right, I got to ask you, is there ever a situation where the Supreme Court reaches down to the Superior Court level or even to the Common Pleas level to grab a case to decide on their own? So suas, that's called sua sponte, that, in other words, on its own. No, they would have to have a request. They will reach down and on occasion will reverse what the lower court below them did, for example. The Pennsylvania Superior Court, let's say the panel of three, here's a decision, an opinion's written. So in the case I, I referenced back in 88, the Superior Court reversed the sentence of the trial court, and the trial court in the case that I had just coincidentally prosecuted had given consecutive sentences. The Superior Court said, no, it originated out of the same act. It should be concurrent. Went down to Philadelphia. We had what were called amicus curiae briefs. That means friend of the court briefs from parties on both sides. They heard the case. They issued a decision and actually reversed the Pennsylvania Superior Court and reinstated the sentence of the trial court um, and gave consecutive sentences. Now, that doesn't ha they don't like to reverse the panel of three or even the end bank panel of seven or nine. Um, they, you know, so they have to be convinced it was erroneous in law. But were and, you uh, pushing it or was your op opposition pushing it up? Or were they saying, you know what, we want to hear this, push it so, up. So, so what happened in that scenario, and this is a good template because people can use this as an example. The, uh, the defendant in that case got an excess of what he felt was too much time. Instead of adding uh, 10 and 10 and five years, they should have all been together as 10, just to make it simple math. So he pushed it. And then I disagreed with the application of the definition of merger as the three uh, crimes he committed were in different chapters of our crimes code, wow. which to me evidenced a different intent by our legislative branch to protect different interests. The Superior Court said, you know, we haven't really defined merger. Let's hear this. They did and then went to a definition that was consistent with how we felt on behalf of the Commonwealth. Right. So that would be an example of 
what kind of case they want to hear. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. All right. We're going to uh, move kind of quickly here yeah. because we're running out of time. It's, yeah, I'm sorry. No, yeah. no, you're great. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about criminal proceedings because, uh, again, these are my observations. We have situations in our community where some neighborhoods seem to be terrorized by criminal activity with revolving doors of criminals in and out of jail. Uh, then, but then you have other situations where some cases seem to be overcharged, you know, like we saw three first degree um, uh, homicide uh, charges that all went to uh, to not guilty. And, you know, they were thrown out or lessened. And so, uh, you know, I'm trying to sort this all out in my brain of how we can have a lot of crime that doesn't seem it seems to be unabated by the judicial system and then we have like a, a a judicial system run amok on on cases that seem to be like wow this well just the, the casual observer was, would okay. be would be able to figure this out right but that's what that's the beauty of our system so let's first get to the concept of what's called prosecutorial discretion the charging decision so the police investigate they file what's called a criminal complaint that starts the process that complaint gets filed but it gets reviewed by our gate our county's gatekeeper of law enforcement which essentially is our elected official our district attorney, okay? And I have found over the years that he served Jack Denary to be abundantly fair. He tries and did try to do the right thing. He was committed to fairness. Was he criticized? Yes, for the types of cases that you mentioned that were high profile. You know, why was one person charged? Was it a racial thing? Was it a gender thing? Why wasn't self-defense considered? I think those were the genre of cases you were mentioning those are the ones that were publicized but i will say this the system worked because yes there was prosecutorial discretion in his honest view he reviewed it with the police the victims everyone took those factors and i'm not speaking in his voice right. but i just know him to be that kind of person and so is beth hers they have to make decisions at the forefront to see what is appropriately charged or supported by what's called probable cause. Okay, why do I think the system worked and didn't run amok? Because it worked its way through. Now remember, you have the right to counsel, you have the right to a preliminary hearing, which for you and I, I call the colander of, um, so you're cooking pasta, you put it in the colander, you shake it out. Yeah. Whatever runs through it is is garbage, whatever is left is is goes over to a next level for the sauce i, I don't want to simplify it right. but that's how students relate i call it the the it's the protective measure so at a preliminary hearing what an mdj does is says is there enough prima facie on its face enough evidence to send this over to the court of common police that's one screening level then once it gets to the court of common police it works its way through the system you unpanel a fair and impartial jury and i think it worked i think the system you know rounded out any any criticisms that you know maybe there was an overcharge or maybe there wasn't or that kind of argument i believe in the system is it perfect no 
and we're a part of it. So I'm always looking at doing better, as all our judges are. Now we have President Judge Walsh. He's doing a great job. So that that's my take on it. Okay. Last minute with uh, Judge John sure. Trusilla. Um how much crime is linked to mental illness and what resources do defendants have to get real help? Okay, very good question. Not only at the adult level, but certainly I'm empathetic at the juvenile level because I do a lot of juvenile work. But Judge Walsh, his forte is mental health. Uh, before becoming uh, a judge, he served in mental health treatment court and we've carried that over. And now we also have a veterans court because there's a lot of dual diagnosis, mental health, maybe drug or alcohol dependency, you know, PTSD, anxiety. They kind of go hand in hand sometimes, unfortunately. But we have, you know, treatment courts now um, that try to address this. But we're we always are looking for more tools. And mental health is an area that certainly needs all hands on deck because it is that silent um, concern now that uh, has to be addressed. And I think because it's being talked about and mentioned and addressed, I think we're in a better position than we were, let's say, 10, 15 years ago. That's good news, and we'll have to leave it there. Okay. I tell you what, we we Sorry. we could just no, we could just keep going. You know, it's just it's just <laughs> we probably the, will. The, 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 we, we probably will. Judge John Trusilla from the Erie County Court of Common Pleas. Thank you very much, it, sir. It, it was an honor and privilege. Happy New Year. Thanks, Joel. You've been listening to the Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing Joel at TalkErie.com. <laughs>